Um, a special morning. Um, this is Will Smith, not the Fresh Prince. <laughs> um, so um, he's going to help me this morning. And also it's a special morning too because the Nebaker family is here. And when I first became a, a Christian over 40 years ago, about prayer, I was taught, ask, wait, trust. And so as I see the Nebuchadnezzar family here, I share a verse with you, Hebrews chapter 11. The old man mind's going a little bit, so it's either verse 4 or 6. But it says, without faith, it is impossible to please God. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him Amen. by his grace and mercy. Good morning. So I want to go ahead and read from chapter 20 of Matthew up to verses 1 to 16. <clears throat> so, for the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house, who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. After agreeing with his laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into his vineyard. And going out about the third hour, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And to them he said, you go into the vineyard too, and whatever is right I will give you. So they went going out again about the sixth hour and the ninth hour. He did the same. And about the eleventh hour, he went out and found others standing. And he said to them, Why do you stand here idle all day? They said to him, Because no one has hired us. He said to them, You go into the vineyard too. And when everything, when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, Call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last up to the first. And when those hired about the eleventh hour came, each of them received a denarius. Now those who hired first came, they thought they would receive more, but each of them also received denarius. And on receiving it, they grumbled at, at the master of the house, saying, these last worked only an hour, and you have made them equal to us, who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching of the heat. But he replied to one of them, friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to this last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge me, did you begrudge my generosity? So the last will be first and the first will be last. And as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, he took the 12 disciples aside and on the way he said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death, and, the deliver, and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified, and he will be raised on the third day. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came up to him with her sons, and kneeling before him, she asked him for something. And he said to her, What do you want? She said to him, 
Say that these two sons of mine are to sit, one at your right hand and one on your left in your kingdom. Jesus answered, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? They said to him, we are able. He said to them, you will drink my cup, but to sit on my right hand and at my left is not mine to grant but it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my father. And when the ten heard it, they were indignant at the two brothers. But Jesus called them, called them to him and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant." and whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to, to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. As they went out to Jericho, a great crowd followed him, and behold, there were two blind men sitting by the roadside. And when, and when they had heard that Jesus was passing by, they cried out, Lord, have mercy on us, Son of David. The crowd rebuked them, telling them to be silent, but they cried out all the more. Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. And stopping, Jesus called them and said, What do you want me to do for you? They said to him, Lord, let our eyes be opened. And Jesus, in pity, touched their eyes, and immediately they recovered their sight and followed them. Let's pray. Father, we, uh, we lift up this time in your word, and we pray, Lord, that as Jackie brings it before us, that you would give him clarity of mind, clarity of speech, that he may accurately proclaim to us, declare to us what your scripture says today. And we be, may we not only be hearers of your word, but doers. In Jesus' name, amen. Little ones are free. All right. Matthew chapter 20, and the first shall be last, and the last shall be first. Building off of what Jesus uh, spoke about in chapter 19, he then moves into this next pericope where he's going to have two different requests made of him. And one of those requests is the one that will bring salvation, and the other one is the root that will bring too much pride. Jesus has been talking about this for a long time. He brought a children before them twice. You remember when we talked about the reason for the child? Look, I know we'd all like to say, oh, they're so pure and innocent, but you should know better by now. No? Uh, maybe your kids were. My kids, 
I won't tell you what I called them. My wife will be mad. My children uh, had a sin nature. They were born with it. I never once had to teach them to do wrong. I, my job was to correct the wrong that they did. But what they were an example of when Jesus brought them forward was the lowest station in the social structure of the day. Unless you become like one of these. Because in those days, no child was going to the city gate making decisions for the city they lived in. Were they? Jesus said, become as one of these little ones. Children where parents were trying to bring their little ones before the Lord, that he would bless them. And the disciples are stopping them. Now, they're not stopping them because of this or that. They're just simply saying, no, 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 no. These are the lowest. This is the lowest rung of social existence. And the lowest rung of social existence does not have access to come before the great teacher. And Jesus, the scripture said, rebuke them. And he said, let the little children come. The disciples are going to argue over and over again, even to the very last night, about what? Who is the greatest? Who gets to be the boss? Who has all the authority? In this section of Matthew 20, Jesus is going to tell us. The one who has all the authority is God. It is not you, and it is not me. The final arbiter and authority in the life of every believer on the face of the earth is the Lord God Almighty and his word. So when we look at this today, there's several things that I think that Matthew is trying to help us to see. And the very first one that we need to remind ourselves of no matter where we are is that he is, God is in control of all things. The Lord did not give up, surrender his seat. Chaos does not reign. The Lord is in control. We see that in God's decree through Jesus Christ. Look what he says. And as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, he took the 12 disciples aside, and on the way, he said to them. Now, Mark chapter 10 tells us something else. The disciples are are a little freaked out about this trip to Jerusalem. Mark chapter 10, verse 32 says, as they were on the road going to Jerusalem, Jesus was walking ahead of them, and they were amazed, and those who followed, that's everyone, Jesus was in front, those who followed were afraid. They are afraid. What's going on? And so Jesus began to tell them. Look at verse 18 of Matthew 20. See, we are going up to Jerusalem. And the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes. And they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. And he will be raised on the third day. The point of Jesus telling them this is that they would know that God is in control of that day. Is that ever helpful for us to think about God being in control on 
particularly chaotic days or times in our life? Does it provide us comfort to know that that God didn't, you know, lose grip of the world and all this bad stuff happened, but rather that the Lord, He is doing what He does. This section of Scripture, Jesus is going to say that He gives His life a ransom. That word ransom can also be translated redemption. Has the Lord ever redeemed any chaotic time in your life? Has the Lord ever... Yeah, I know for sure, Isaac. The Lord redeems. Uh, we can't always see, but I, I love what Victor said because the... I have to get to the place where I am praying and I'm waiting and I'm trusting. And I'm saying, oh, the Lord is here. He, he did not forsake me. The Lord is here. And he will redeem this. Whatever the this is. He will redeem this. So Jesus gives a very specific, it's a very specific prophecy here we want to consider First, he said he would be betrayed into the hands of the religious leaders. That's pretty specific. To the religious leaders, I will be betrayed into their hands. In Psalm 41, verse 9, David writing about a close friend of his, Ahithophel, he says, Even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. David didn't understand, well, we can kind of look at the circumstances and and comprehend maybe the why, why this would go on. But, but David's like, you know, I don't, I don't know what purpose this serves. And then in his pain, he writes a song about the betrayal of his friend, the one who was his friend who had betrayed him and, and went to his son who brought rebellion against him. And you guys, you guys uh, can read about the story if you don't know it. And so David writes his song. And when he's writing that song, expressing his pain in ink under the, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he actually writes the same thing that would happen to Jesus. You guys ever been betrayed? One of the, one of the fascinating things for me when I, when I put my eyes on Christ is how many ways he can relate to my suffering. Because his suffering was not special in, in the sense that we don't, we can't relate. We relate to betrayal. David could relate to betrayal. He wrote about it. In John 13, Jesus quotes David's song. He says in John 13, during supper, when the devil had already put it in the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hand, Jesus knows what's going on, that he had come from God and he was going back to God, so he knows there will be death, burial, and resurrection. He knew who would betray him, it says in verse 11. He spoke, not all of you are clean. And so he says in verse 21, after these sayings, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, I say to you, one of you will 
betray me. The disciples looked at one another and said, well, whom do you speak? Of whom do you speak? One of his disciples, the one whom Jesus loved, was reclining at a table at Jesus' side. And Simon Peter motioned to him to ask the Lord, of whom was he speaking? So that disciple leaned back against Jesus and said, Lord, who is it? And he says, it's the one who has dipped the morsel with me. And he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. And after he had taken it, uh, Satan entered into him, and Jesus said, What you are going to do, do quickly. And no one at the table understood why he said this to him. Some thought it was because Judas had the money bag. Jesus was telling them, But what we need for the feast, what we should give to the poor. So after receiving the morsel, he went out. I love this phrase. And it was night. Matthew 26 says, so he came to his disciples and he said to them, sleep and take your rest later on. The hour is at hand. The son of man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. The betrayer is here. Jesus had sat there on the Mount of Olives watching the whole procession coming up, coming before him. The one who has broke bread with me has lifted his heel against me. Second thing he said is he would be condemned. He's going to be condemned. Psalm 69.4 says, More in number than the hairs of my head are those who hate me without cause. Mighty are those who would destroy me, those who attack me with lies. What I did not steal, must I now restore? Jesus would say in John 15, Now this word has been fulfilled. They hated me without a cause. Psalm 2, David wrote, writing again, a psalm declares, The kings of the earth have set themselves, the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. They are going to stand in judgment over him, and they are going to condemn him. But in Acts chapter 4, Scripture says this in verse 25, who through the mouth of our father, David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set them and the rulers were together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city, there were gathered together against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. God was accomplishing his purpose in Christ. In Mark 14, 64, it says, the priests were shouting out, you have heard this blasphemy, what is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving to die. But Jesus heading to Jerusalem is saying to his disciples, hey, I'm going to go into Jerusalem. And when I go, <clears throat> I will be betrayed into the hands of the religious leaders, which he was. And they will condemn me. And I will be delivered to the Gentiles. Now, for the most part, the rule under Roman authority was that capital cases had to go through Rome. But you guys know that the rule and the practice are not always the same. Are you aware of that? So, for example, when we look at the book of Acts, we see the stoning of Stephen. 
You remember the stoning of Stephen? The people are angry. They're agitated about this, this preaching that Stephen was doing, showing Jesus to be the Christ. And what did they do? Did they deliver him to the Gentiles to be put to death? No. What did they do? They stoned him. They stoned him. In practice, if they were angry enough, they would just stone you. But Jesus doesn't say they're going to stone me. He says they're going to give me to the Gentiles. They're going to give me to the Gentiles. And so he's three things they're going to do, he says. They're going to give me to the Gentiles to mock me, to scourge me, and to crucify me. Jesus is aware of where they're going and what they are doing. Psalm 22, a messianic psalm, again written by David, about his own struggles, about his, the own things. He, he's not, David, when he wrote Psalm 22, he's not seeing Messiah as he writes it. The Lord is using his experience, his life. David's life was just like our lives, wrought with trouble. And so David writes the 22nd Psalm in verse 7 and 8. It says, all who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. That, that means they, they look at me with uh, stink eye. You guys have seen stink eye before? It's just the way their, their face, the way they look at me. They wag their heads. You ever see, walk past a group of people and then they turn and start whispering? He trusts in the Lord. This is the words David said they were saying about him. They were gossiping about him. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him if he delights in him. David finding himself in times of trouble. And once again, God using the experience of David through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit has David penned these things in a song, and it's the exact same words they say to Messiah. It's the exact same way they mock Jesus. But Jesus does something that nobody else does. Have you ever had someone gossip about you? Have you ever had someone mock you? Have you ever had somebody judge you or, or be unwilling to lend a helping hand when you were in trouble? Well, if that's true for us, how much more it is true for our Savior, Jesus Christ. The Bible tells us Jesus faced these things. He faced the, the reviling of the crowds. He faced the, the struggles that they were in, yet he, he didn't do what we think we need to do. The Proverbs says this, a fool gives full vent to his feelings. Have you ever said this phrase, I just need to vent? Be careful. Now, it doesn't say a fool never vents. It just says a fool gives full vent. This is what Jesus did. 1 Peter 2, 21, For to this you have been called, because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example. So we're supposed to follow Christ. Amen? We're supposed to follow Christ in the example that he, lived, that he lived out for us. So that you might follow in his steps. So I want to respond like Christ. 
He committed no sin, nor was deceit found in his mouth. There was no corrupt speech in his mouth. In Ephesians chapter 4, it says, Let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth, but only as such that will give uh, encouragement, that will give grace to those who hear. Words that exalt, words that lift up, words that encourage. It doesn't mean we never rebuke, <coughs> but it does mean we don't use corrupt words to do it. Right? He had no deceit in his mouth. When he was reviled, when he was hated, when he was gossiped about, when he was talked about, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. Those guys driving the nails in his hands, Jesus looked at him and said, when I get off of this, I'm going to... No, what did he say? Forgive them for... They know not what they do. Huh. And here's what he did positively. He entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. By the way, that's not you and me. Who's the one who judges justly? God is the one who judges justly. And so David in his pain pens the 22nd Psalm, which says they're going to mock me and they're going to talk about me and they're going to do these things to me. And then David, from his own experience, writes the very same words they're going to say to his Savior. And, and Jesus is going to quote from Psalm 22 on the cross. Well, this is pretty incredible. It's pretty incredible. They're going to scourge me. It's going to scourge me. The Jews had a system. The beatings from a Jew was 39 lashes. Rome did not have that. No such thing. Rome beat you till they got tired. One of the one of the hardest scenes to watch in the Passion of the Christ, right? You guys ever watch it? Oh, probably only once, right? I bought the DVD. It just gathers dust. Uh, I don't. I think I've watched it twice, probably. So, but one of the things they depict in that movie is the Roman soldiers being wore out from the scourging. Jesus said, they're going to scourge me, and then they're going to crucify me. That's kind of precise, right? Because that's not typical. But Jesus prophesying, but he never tells them about suffering without telling them about hope. Because the only way we will endure the suffering we face is to have hope hope so after he says they're gonna mock me they're gonna scourge me they're gonna crucify me he proclaims the victory and on the third day i'm gonna rise again psalm 16 10 says this for you will not abandon my soul to sheol the grave again david writing out of his own pain, believing that there's a day, that there will be a day, that I'm not, I don't just die and go into the ground eternally. There's, <clears throat> there's something that happens. And so from faith and writing through his pain, he says, you will not abandon me in hell. You won't abandon me in the grave, and you won't let your Holy One see corruption. Now the 
Jewish mindset was that they would take a body the way someone was buried in that day, still today, they take the body and they put it in a tomb. And they lay it in the tomb and they let it decompose. And after the body is completely decomposed, they go back and they gather the bones in an ossuary, usually only the thigh bone, but it could be all of them. And they put them in an ossuary and the ossuary, a bone box, goes into the family crypt. David says, you're not going to let my body see corruption. There is a day coming. Jesus, <coughs> and we understand from that as it's going to be quoted about him in the book of Matthew. You won't let my, my body see corruption. What Corruption began on day four. So if he wasn't going to see corruption, something happened, had to happen before four days. But Jesus always told them what day. What did he say? third day the third day Hosea 6 1 and 2 is an interesting verse this is not necessary I'm not trying to repurpose Hosea 6 1 and 2 but I just want to share it with you because it's interesting come let us return to the Lord for he has torn us that he may heal us he has struck us down and he will bind us up after two days he will revive us on the third day he will raise us up that we may live before him it's a verse of hope Yes, in life we go through struggles and hard things and we get knocked down and we go through times of suffering, but there will be a day. Every time Jesus spoke about what was coming, he also spoke about his resurrection. Now, following this conversation, you have the beginning of two questions asked of Jesus. The first one, is a question seeking authority. It's a question seeking title, seeking power. And the next one is a question seeking mercy. It says in verse uh, Matthew 20, verse 20, then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came up to him with her sons, and kneeling before him, she asked him for something. So he said, so she walks up to Jesus and says, hey, can I ask you something? You guys have had a conversation like this before, right? So Jesus says, sure, what do you want? What can I do for you? So she said to him, say that these two sons of mine are to sit on your right hand and on your left in the kingdom. When did Jesus purchase the kingdom? He just told them where, where he's going. He's going to the cross. In a moment, Jesus is going to say, you don't know what you're asking for. Because she has no idea, right? She will understand. So to the right and to the left of Jesus, when he was ushered, ushering in his kingdom, when he was purchasing the kingdom, there was someone on his right and on his left. They were two thieves. Now, I know for, for uh, the, the mother of the Zebedee boys, the sons of thunder, <clears throat> I know for her, she means thrones. Right? But that's not what was coming when he would be glorified. When he would be glorified, what was coming was a time of pain. Verse 22, Jesus said, you don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup 
I will drink. Now, a lot of people have a lot of questions about this cup. I don't believe this cup is his death. I think Jesus, that was, that's foregone. Jesus came to die. But what is in that cup, I believe, is the suffering. It's the cup of suffering. The outpouring in some sense of the wrath of God, right? The cup of trembling, the cup of wrath, the cup of suffering. Anybody here ever had to drink the cup of suffering? Jesus says, are you able to drink the cup? He says, of course, they, it's a plural, so the boys are answering now. Sure we can. Yeah, we'll do whatever. They will be able. One of those two boys will be the first disciple martyred. He will be put to the sword by Herod the king. Herod, seeing that it pleased the people, is going to try to get Peter as well. Peter will be locked up. The angels will come through the prayers of the saints, rattle the doors of the cage open, and Peter will walk free. Do you think there was ever anybody who would say, why didn't you deliver James, John's brother? And why did you deliver Peter? Now, we know if we look at the story that Peter, there were some things Peter needed to still accomplish, right? And there was some work God was doing in Peter. And just for those who struggle with these kind of questions, later on, God's going to come to Peter, Jesus is going to come to Peter and say, Peter, when you're old, someone's going to stretch you out. He's talking about crucifixion. And they're going to take you where you don't want to go. So in the, in the Bible says in the Gospel of John, this he spoke about the way he would glorify God, the death by which he would glorify God. And then Peter turned around and looked at John, the other son of thunder. And Peter looked at him and said, what about him? You remember what Jesus said? Yeah, we got a lot of ways to say it, huh? Why don't you just stop worrying about everybody else? And just worry about yourself. We all have a path we have to walk, right? And we are always going to struggle with fair or unfair. Why this and not that? We're always, it's going to be a part. It's, <coughs> excuse me, it's a part of the, of the text. It's a part of our reality. Jesus is saying, can you drink the cup? You will. He didn't say in this world you might have hard times. Did he say that? He said in this world you shall have tribulation. The word tribulation means a pressing, a crushing. You ever felt crushed or pressed in your existence on earth? In this world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome. It means it has no power over you. Here's the good news for the believer. The very worst thing that anyone can do to you, the furthest they could ever go would be to take your life, and all that does is put you in the presence of Almighty God. 
That's the worst that can be done. And it is the doorway to the presence of glory. So the Lord is saying, will you drink this cup? How many times have we in our existence looked at that cup and said, um, I don't know why I got to have this. Why am I going through this suffering? Why am I struggling? Why am, am I? But you know what happens when that's going on in our minds and with that, when that's going on in our life? That just means we've got our eyes off of Jesus and we put our eyes on the storm. What happened to Peter when he did that? He's walking on the water. Everything's good. Then he starts to look at the storm. What am I doing out here? What's going on? How am I doing this? I don't know what's happening. And what, what goes on? He sinks. So we got to keep our eyes focused on the one who says, I will never leave you or forsake you. So I will put my hand in Jesus' hand, and I will take whatever cup he hands me, and I will drink it just like John, just like Ezekiel, just like the scripture talks about. And it will be both bitter to taste, and it may even... Or sweet to taste and bitter in the stomach. Sometimes there's gonna, it's going to be, nobody's saying it's not going to be hard. It's not going to be difficult. There won't be hard things we're called to. But the end result is glory. Resurrection power. The beauty of what God is going to do. So they all shout, we're able. We're able to do it. So Jesus says, you will drink. Was there a disciple who didn't go through suffering? Nope. Were there disciples who didn't die? Well, eventually they died of old age. But there were, there were disciples who were martyred, right? There's at least one who lived to die of old age. What's going on? You will drink this cup. You will suffer. But to sit at my right and my left, that's not mine to give. I love how Jesus functions in, a, in authority as almighty God in submission to the father the father will choose right and left doesn't make Jesus less God it just makes Jesus a good example of how we ought to see authority we have a tendency to clamor for authority and we want that rung we want to be in charge we want to tell everybody else what they ought to do I don't know why we're like that but that's not how Jesus was. That's not mine to give. That's not mine to give. That's not how it will be done. And when the ten heard this conversation, the other disciples are listening, they get ticked off. Right? No, they're not mad. They're just mad they didn't think about it, I think. So they're mad. They're having a fit, right? They're carrying on. They're irritated. How do I know this? Because all the way up to the last night, they're going to be continuing an argument that began long ago. Who's the greatest? Jesus, when you leave, who's in charge? Which one of us will make all the calls? Which one of us will be in charge of all the decisions? You got to tell us which one, Lord. You got to put one of us in that position. And they argued about that all the way to the day of the crucifixion. Who will be the greatest. So look what Jesus says. Jesus called them unto himself and he said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them 
and their great ones uh, exercise authority over them. They have a structure. The world has a power structure, right? But what he wants us to understand is the only authority that we care about is authority that comes from God delivered to us through his word. That's it. That's the final arbiter in our obedience. Look what he says in verse 26. This is not how it will be among you. This is not supposed to be a structure where everybody's clamoring for authority and power. Whoever among you would be great must be your diakonos. What do you think that word sounds like? Deacon. It's the word deacon. Diakonos. You know what a deacon is? A waiter. Whoever will be great among you shall be your waiter. Servant. The one who's serving you. A diakonos. The calling of the deacons is simply another phrasing for servant. Just so you know, elder is no different. Except elder has a, a stricter condemnation because they're going to be brought under judgment for what they did or didn't do according to the word of God. So you better hold fast to God's word, right? We want to stand on God's word. But we are to be one diakonos, a waiter, a servant, and whoever would be first among you. Now, we've been talking about first and last through the whole chapter, right? Whoever would be first among you must be your doulos. That's your slave. Now, doulos is kind of a special slave. A doulos is a slave for life. Most times you weren't slaves for long. You, were, you would go to debt, right? I, let's say I got in debt. Anybody ever been in debt? Okay, you get in debt and you can't pay it. In our day, we declare bankruptcy. In their day, you sold yourself as a slave. So that person you sold yourself to would take your debt. They would cover your debt. That's why you sold yourself. They'd cover your debt, and you would work for them seven years or whatever the, whatever the, whatever the mark was. You, that was just a slave. Dulos was somebody who loved his master so much he said, I don't ever want to leave. Now, in our world today, it's all this talk about the Bible this, the Bible that, the Bible never condemns slavery. Well, it's kind of hard to condemn the one thing that you're saying that you're all supposed to want to be. But in our world, we don't like that, right? I mean, who wants to proclaim themselves a slave? I'll tell you, if you'll listen, a guy named the Apostle Paul. One of the ways we can tell the purpose of Paul's writing in his epistles. If he was writing because someone was denying that, that he was an apostle, given authority by God to, do, to accomplish certain things, he would start the book with Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ. If it wasn't a corrective letter, he always would start like this. Paul, a slave, of Jesus Christ. Now there are times where authority needs to be laid out, right? We have to stand strong. God calls certain people to stand 
on the word of God and have authority with the word of God. And so he sets up, I believe, a structure in the church under the elders that's come together and accomplished those things. But they're also supposed to be a slave. It's hard to be proud and a slave. It's hard to be proud and a little child. It's hard to be clamoring for who's the greatest and be a slave. Do you get the picture? Jesus says, if you want to be great, then I want you to be a slave. So you're going to hear yourself say these words. I can't believe they are treating me like this. And what we need to remind ourselves of is I am a bond slave, a slave forever to my Lord Jesus Christ. And they treated him this way. They will also. So I'm to respond like him. Right? Who when he was reviled did not revile in return. When he was hurt, he did not threaten. But he committed himself to the hands of the one who judges justly. So Jesus gives us the example, right, according to Peter, to follow, putting our trust in God the Father and following the example of our Lord Jesus Christ. And we walk in humility before him. Why? Look at verse 28. Because the Son of Man, that's a messianic term, did not come to be served but to serve and give his life a ransom for many. Now, <clears throat> Scripture lays out for us here that he came as a servant, not one who is to be served, but one who serves. The greatest picture of that we see in John chapter 13, the very last night. The disciples are arguing, because they're always arguing. And Judas just got up to go betray him. Or just pre, I'm sorry, just previous to Judas getting up and going to betray him. And this conversation is going on, and Jesus just gets up, takes off his robe, girds himself in a towel, wraps a towel around him, goes to the door, grabs a basin of water, and one by one goes through and washes every one of their dirty, stinky feet. And then when he's done, Jesus says, do you know what I have done to you? Do you know what I have done? John 13, verse 14 says, if I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly I say unto you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is the messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you. Paul would write in Philippians chapter 2, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not consider it uh, equality with God to be a thing to be grasped, but rather emptied himself, emptied himself of title, 
emptied himself. He's still fully God. He doesn't empty himself of his deity, but he empties himself of all that was rightly his as the creator of the universe. And he took on the form of a servant. Here's something I want you to understand. The word form, the word form of God means that Jesus Christ in his very absolute core of his nature is God. And the exact same word is used of servant. And in his core of who God is, he is a servant. That's why the desire to be the greatest flies in the face so much. That's why pride is hated. Because in his core, he is a servant. And he came, you notice the next phrase, in the likeness of men. Well, he's not a man the same way he's God. He's not a man the same way he's a servant. But he came in the likeness of men. And found in human form, he humbled himself, being obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. The Son of Man gives himself a ransom for many. Now, just briefly, I want to touch on this before I get to the next story so we can see the comparison. He says here he gives himself as a ransom for many. In 1 Timothy 2.6, it says... Paul, speaking of Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. So which is it? Is he a ransom for many or is he a ransom for all? The answer is yes. Why is the answer yes? Here, he gave himself a ransom for the many. For is the word anti. Anti means in the place of, speaks of substitution. He's a substitutional sacrifice for many. How do I know that? Because everyone won't believe. 1 Timothy 4.10 says, For to this we toil and strive because we have our hope set on the living God who is the Savior of all people, especially those who believe. There's a distinction Does he provide for all? Yes. Do all receive? No. He gives himself a ransom for many. The other word for in 1 Timothy 2.6 is the word huper. Huper means uh, on behalf of. It is a word of sufficiency. The other is a word of efficiency. The blood of Jesus Christ is sufficient to purge the world of all its sin. Yes, it is supremely sufficient, but it is only efficacious in those who believe. You understand what that means? It only works upon those who believe. It's only efficient if you put your trust in Jesus Christ. If you don't put your trust in Jesus Christ, if he is not your Lord and Savior, the blood of Jesus Christ did not save you despite your will. You understand? So in one sense, he gave himself, his life, a ransom for many because that's the ones who will believe. In another sense, he gave himself a ransom for all because his blood is sufficient 
to purchase every man, woman, and child. But every man, woman, and child must believe. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whosoever, what's the next phrase? Believes. Those believing shall have eternal life, right? They shall have eternal life. We see the same thing in 1 John 2.2. 2. It says in 1 John 2.2, 2, he is the propitiation, <clears throat> which is a big word. It means he is the sin sacrifice for our sins and not for ours only, but the sins of the whole world. His blood is sufficient to save. It is only efficacious in those who believe. You got me? So if it's a question of amount, there was enough blood in Jesus to save the world. But that blood must be applied individually to the life. And it's not applied, there's no salvation that comes. It's a statement against universalism. You know what universalism is? Universalism says this, Jesus died on the cross and the whole world was saved whether you believe or not. That's not what the Bible teaches, is it? It's confusing the scriptures that talk about sufficiency. Is the blood of Jesus sufficient to save you? Yes. Has it been efficacious? Are you saved? You are if you believe. You guys with me? Okay. That's a side note. It's worth what you paid for. Okay, story number two, and then how they tie together. And as they went out of Jericho, a great crowd followed them. And behold, there were two blind men sitting by the roadside. And when they heard Jesus was passing by, they cried out, what? Lord, give me authority. Lord, give, make me the greatest. What did they say? Lord, have mercy. Has that ever been you? Listen, if that has not ever been you, I don't know if you know Jesus as your Lord and Savior. Jesus told a story. A tax collector and a Pharisee went to the temple to pray. Do you remember? And the Pharisee said, Lord, I'm so thankful that I'm not as bad as that guy. And then the tax collector, he did what? He beat his breast and he said what? Same phrase, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. Wow. You see, this all fits with the first will be last and the last will be first because everybody's going to tell those two blind guys, shut up. Will you shut up? We're trying to hear Jesus and you guys keep yelling for mercy. Just be quiet. And the more they told him to shut up, what'd they do? They got louder. How bad... Do you want mercy? Because those two guys wanted mercy bad. Didn't they? Mercy, Lord, mercy, mercy. They're crying out to him. They give a messianic, they're calling him the king. The son of David is the king. They're saying, you are the king. Have mercy on us. You are the king, have mercy on us. They make this plea before the Lord. The crowd rebuked them. They got louder. Lord, have mercy on us. Son of David, have mercy on us. So Jesus stopped and said the same thing to them. He said to Mama Zebedee, what do you want me to do for you? 
One came wanting greatness, and the other came wanting salvation. One came wanting authority, the other came wanting wholeness. It's not the same stuff. What do you want me to do for you? Make it so we can see. This is physical and metaphorical because the whole world was having a hard time seeing who Jesus was except for the people that he opened their eyes. Right? Everybody's struggling with seeing him. Who are you? Who are you? Jesus, they say, what, what do we do? What do we need to do? What do you want me to do for you? Let me see. Those two blind guys knew what the word of God said. Psalm 146, verse 8. Yahweh opens the eyes of the blind. Yahweh lifts up those who are bowed down. Yahweh loves righteousness. What was it they were doing so righteous? They were crying for mercy. <laughs> Isaiah 35, 4 and 5. Say to those who have an anxious heart. Anybody got an anxious heart? Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance and recompense. Who gets the vengeance? Me or God? Yeah, because he knows what he's doing. I don't know what I'm doing. I pour it out on the wrong people. So what's it say? You have an anxious heart. Be strong. Don't be afraid. God's got you. Trust yourselves into the one, into the hands of the one who deals justly. Listen to what it says. He will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind will be opened and the ears of the deaf. Death will be unstopped. What did Jesus do everywhere away? Oh my gosh. It's a total fulfillment of what Isaiah said. Isaiah said, oh, come on, guys. Trust yourself to God. God's moving. God's working. But they, they couldn't see. Because their eyes not on the prize anymore. Their eyes is all on me, on self. They're not unwilling to take the cup that Jesus is giving because it is a cup of suffering. Why do you think he would go to the Garden of Gatshmone and he would say, Lord, if there be any other way, let this cup pass from me. <clears throat> it's, not, it's not talking about death, it's the suffering. You and I are not ever going to understand the depth of suffering that Jesus Christ endured to purge the world, you and I, the believers of our sin. You will never understand. Our meager, weak suffering cannot even compare with the suffering that he endured so that we could be saved. This cup, let it pass from me. Nevertheless, it's not about me. It's about you, God. Should my words, if the cup of my suffering be any different? Did Jesus give me an example of the way I should walk? the attitude that I should have. So when I come to my time of suffering, I'm not saying it's easy. I'm not saying it's easy, but when I come to my time of suffering, I take that cup and I say the same words Jesus said. I, look, I don't, I'm not looking forward to suffering and I don't like it. But I want to do your will more. The most beautiful place I have ever been is in a hospital bedroom with a woman who was just told she's going to die in two weeks. And the very first words from her mouth 
was, Lord, help me to be an example of you to the day I die. Was She didn't say, okay, preacher, you, you better, you're on the spot. Get me healed. No, she just said, I want to I die well. I want to follow my Savior to the end of the road. And she did. We want to follow the example that Jesus Christ gives. And so we cry out and we say, Lord, have mercy on me. It's not about I want authority. I want to be at your right hand and your left hand. They didn't even know what they were asking, did they? If they did, would they have asked? No, Lord, I want to be on the right side and the left side of your cross. No, but they will endure suffering, won't they? Because in the kingdom of God here on earth, the last are first. And the first are last. It's different. It it's puts every, the way we think, it puts it on its ear. It doesn't mean that we are approved of by God because we have ease. And it doesn't mean we're disapproved of God because we don't. But that's how we tend to judge things, isn't it? But in the kingdom of God, that's all on its ear. First will be last, the last will be first. In order to be great, you must be a slave. You must be the servant of all. Jesus had pity. He touched their eyes. Immediately they recovered their sight. And Luke 18, 43 says, And all the people, when they saw it, praised God. Man, if you want to impact the world... For the kingdom of God. Take your cup of suffering. And endure. Be a light. Can you think of examples of people who have endured. Just in our fellowship. Who have endured suffering gracefully. What a great picture isn't it? What a beautiful example. They're, they're, they're worthy of our admiration. Right? Right? For the things that they have endured. And so the Lord says, look, it's, it's going to be this way. Jesus said, I'm going to the cross and you who follow me are going there too. Oh, it's just a good, feel good message, right? After this, you guys are ready for take on the world. But listen, please, hear. Paul would say, I do not consider this present suffering worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed. Because even as we look at a, a time of struggle and suffering in this world, we know there's a day coming. Amen? Here's what that means. That day when we see Jesus is so much better than your worst day that your mind can't even begin to fathom it. So Jesus never told us about hard things without giving us hope. He never said, this is going to be difficult and this is going to be a struggle and there's no hope. Oh, woe is me. That's not what he said. 
He said, I'm going to suffer. I'm going to be scourged. I'm going to be mocked. I'm going to be crucified. I'm going to be dead and buried, but I am going to rise again. And one day, believer in Jesus Christ, one day you're going to stand before your Savior. You're going to look into his eyes. And I believe he's going to say to you, watch me make all things new. And he's going to touch you and all your pain and sorrow and grief and hurt and struggle that you piled up over all your days that God is intimately aware of. The Bible says he captures every one of your tears. Your suffering is not pointless to God. He, he, he values your suffering greatly. He's going to touch you and he's going to purge you. And in that moment, whatever pain we've ever felt and endured in our life is going to melt away to something that the Bible says you can't even understand yet. There will be a day when every tear is all washed away. People say this, I'm going to get to heaven and I'm going to stand before Jesus and I'm going to ask him, what about this? And what did this mean? And what did that mean? And the point is, you're not going to need to do that because when you stand before him, he's going to touch you and he's going to purge it. That doesn't mean they didn't exist. He's going to fix it. I look at people all the time. I look at relationships all the time. I unfortunately have to do all this stuff all the time. And I, and I don't know how to fix everybody. Do you know how to fix everybody? I don't know how to fix her. I can't even fix me. I don't know how to do any of that. But Jesus Christ does. He will fix you. There will be a day. He will wash it all away. Amen? Why don't you stand with me? Let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much for the truth of your word declared to us. Lord, we thank you for the opportunity that we have to open your word and, and to talk about it and to hear about it. Lord, I pray as we just have a quiet time of reflection now and an opportunity for prayer as elders and deacons and leaders within the church make themselves available to the body. If you're here today, you don't know Jesus, we want to invite you to, to get to know him. Come up and and have a conversation with one of those standing up front or on the sides. If you're going through a hard time and you need encouragement, come up to one of these standing in the front or on the sides. Prayer is not a last ditch effort. It's the first ditch. May we take the time to come before the Lord in prayer. And may you strengthen us for the journey that is yet before us. May you be glorified. May you be magnified. And may we keep our eyes on you for the journey. In Jesus' name, amen.